Let me invite you to go ahead this evening and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew 5, and tonight we come to the second beatitude, but just so we have the context, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 12, Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he that is speaking of Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's once again pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on his word tonight. Our Father, we do desire once again that you would come and meet with us as you met with us this morning. Father, we pray for a blessing upon your word. Do send your spirit. Help me as I seek to make clear your word, and Father, for all of us, that we would receive your word, that it would sink into the soil of our heart, and that it would bear fruit to your glory and for our eternal good. And we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come this evening to our passage, and that is the second beatitude of verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, I think I'm safe in saying that if we were to review all the beatitudes, and if we had our pick of which ones we might want to do away with, I think between this one and the one on being persecuted would probably be tied in terms of the most votes. And the reason for that is obvious. There are matters that are uncomfortable for us. It's uncomfortable to be those that mourn. It's uncomfortable to undergo persecution. And we might have different reactions when we hear those words, blessed are you who mourn. We might have the reaction to wish that wasn't the case, that our Lord brought this into the Beatitudes. And we might have that reaction because we think of a text like Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we think mourning and joy are antithetical to one another. There can't be both. We can't be mournful and we can't be joyful at the same time. They cancel each other out. But we might have that reaction as well because mourning is heavy, it's sad, it often results in weeping and heaviness of spirit. So why mourning? Why does Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? Well, it's because in this life, those who are in the kingdom are going to experience mourning. It's a matter of fact. Now, in the midst of that, there will be joy and comfort as well. But mourning is to be the expected, I would argue, even the necessary response to life in this world. And also, there's something about being brought into this kingdom that we become those who mourn. Everyone mourns in this life, but those who are brought into the kingdom are made to mourn for reasons that those in the world ignore. Our mourning is spiritually driven, and it's that type of mourning that Jesus says is blessed by knowing comfort. As we come to this beatitude, let me remind you just of the context of the beatitudes as a whole. You know, they set the introduction for our Lord's Sermon on the Mount that's found here, beginning of Matthew 5 and continues on to Matthew 7. Now, I just want to remind us, as we mentioned the last couple times we've looked at the Beatitudes here, that what our Lord is doing in the Beatitudes is describing the character of those who are in the kingdom. He's not describing a way to enter the kingdom. He's describing the work of the spirit of those who are in the kingdom. This is what it looks like for those who are citizens of the kingdom, those who have been born by the Spirit. They reflect the work of grace in the saints. So as we come tonight, I want us to consider the mourning we experience and then the comfort that is provided. 
One of the things we're confronted with in coming to this beatitude is determining what is meant by mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, the word itself is a strong term. It means to mourn, to weep, but sometimes it is translated as wail or wailing. It evokes the image of intense pain vocalized. And we are confronted that on the surface, to mourn is not something distinctly Christian in and of itself. Everyone mourns, whether believer or not. And in fact, we could go around our city tonight and we could enter funeral homes, we could enter hospital rooms, we could enter homes and elsewhere and find those who are mourning, both Christians and non-Christians. We have to remember that in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not speaking simply about shared human experience. He is speaking specifically of those who are part of the kingdom, his people, those who have been born into the kingdom. And the mourning we are going to consider tonight is mourning that comes on account of sin. Now, originally, um, this, I had planned to be much more expansive in terms of our mourning, and I think more is covered by what it means to mourn, such as the sufferings we experience in this life. Um, but for tonight, we're going to limit ourselves to consider the mourning that comes on account of sin. And specifically in two areas, there is mourning over our own sin, and there is mourning over the effects and suffering brought on by sin. And that's what I want us to consider tonight. So consider first of our, our mourning over sin. We are to be those who mourn over our sin. Now we could say that this mourning is really the entryway into the Christian life. We know that when we come to Christ, we come in faith and repentance. Now, that repentance entails with it a sense of sorrow. As it says in the Baptist Catechism, question 92, echoing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sins, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, that is, we recognize our sins, we realize the evilness of our sins, we also realize there's mercy to be had in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Notice that true repentance involves grief. If there's no true grief and there's no sense of mourning over sin, there is no true repentance. One of the clearest passages to speak of this is from 2 Corinthians 7. So let me invite you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians 7, we'll look at verses 8 through 10. And this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, responding to how uh, they responded to his letter that he had written them. So he says, verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for, for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Right there, we have a picture of it. Godly sorrow produces repentance. That is the mourning over sin that we need to experience. And that is true when we are initially converted and also throughout our Christian life. When the gospel first comes to us, and you think back when you were converted, and for some of us, this is stronger and more defined and marked than in others, but the test is not the amount of mourning you did. The test is whether there was presence of godly sorrow over your sin. But for all of us, when we first came to Christ savingly, to some extent or another, there was a sense of sorrow over our sin and a mourning over it, there was a sense of God's holiness and righteousness and the perfection of his law and the fact that I had broken that law and that I had sinned against this God. There was also the realization of the love and mercy of God for me as a sinner in the gift of Christ who welcomes all who come to him. That in Christ, because of his life and death, there is a way open for forgiveness. So those two things joined together, recognition of my own sin and also a hope of the mercy of God in Christ, those constitute godly sorrow. And though it may have just been in seed form in our understanding when we were first converted, yet it is present in all who come to Christ. 
So this mourning is the entryway into the kingdom. But because repentance is not a one-time action, but rather, as Luther famously stated, the whole of our Christian life is to be one of repentance, one of constant turning away from sin and turning toward God. So even as believers, even as those who have been saved, we should still know this mourning and godly sorrow over sin. To mourn over our sin is to rightly consider ourselves and to consider the Lord. We see ourselves rightly. We see ourselves as those who transgress the law of God. In fact, for all of us, whenever it was when we first came to Christ, we came as those who realized we needed a Savior because we are sinners and we have broken the law of God. But even as those who are redeemed, and even as those with hearts that desire to obey in all things the Lord has given us, it's not hard for, to look at, for us to look at ourselves and to find areas where we fall short, areas perhaps where we consistently fall short where we struggle to be consistent in those things that God calls us as his children. And even though we have these new desires, let me ask you, how often those desires ebb and flow throughout the day? And when we see those areas, when we see those areas that we sin, it's not merely just sin against the law of God. And I don't mean to minimize our sins against God's law, because sin is transgression of the law of God. But for those of us who are believers... Sin is not just breaking of the law of God. Our sin as believers is a constant and daily reminder of how far short we're still not like Jesus. The purpose of our salvation is to conform us more and more like the Son, and yet each time we sin, we are reminded that that has not happened yet. We are still a work in progress. We consider Jesus in all his perfections, and throughout the day, we are given reminders of remaining sin still, still within us. We lose our patience, or we snap angrily at someone, and we are reminded that Jesus is gentle and patient. Our eyes linger with a look or indulge a lustful fantasy, and we are reminded that Jesus was pure and holy in all his thoughts and conduct. We remember a wrong that was done to us, and it renews a feeling of bitterness and anger with someone. And we remember Jesus who says, I will remember your sins no more. We disregard our parents and dishonor them, we remember that Jesus was subject to his parents while he walked this earth. We are given opportunities to covet, to be proud, to manifest our sinful nature in so many ways that point away from Jesus. And let me ask you, brothers and sisters, as believers, does this not give us cause to mourn for our sins? Do we not have reason each and every day to be grieved over our sins and the remaining corruption we find within ourselves? Now, that is not in any way to deny that all who are in Christ are justified fully and completely. And I'm not saying that we live each day going in and out of our justification based upon how we recognize our sin. But this does touch on our sanctification. And it is right and proper as justified believers that we still mourn and grieve over our sins. That still needs to be present daily in our lives. Something is wrong in our understanding, if when we come to Christ, we have the thought that because our sins have been dealt with, they don't concern us anymore. And we might have the thought, yeah, we're, we're still going to sin and we're still not going to be perfect, but Jesus paid it all and that's the end of it. I don't have to think about it again. Well, yes, that is true. Jesus did pay it all. And because of that, you will never come under condemnation for your sins. But he also died to make you holy. And you are not going to grow in putting your sin to death and grow in conformity to Jesus if there is not this mourning over sin that leads to repentance. In our struggle at times, we have the danger of causing these realities to be opposed to one another rather than complementing one another. If one simply took the reality of our full and free justification from Christ and ignored any sin in our lives, that would be just as wrong as a person who lives in such a state of depression and sorrow over sin, acting as though by their sorrow they have to atone for their sin daily and that there's no sacrifice for their sin but their tears. Both extremes are where Satan wants us. doesn't matter which one we're at. He wants us in one or the other. He either wants us to minimize our sins or to make them be so large as to overshadow Christ. But our text is telling us it's neither. We mourn over our remaining sin, but we mourn in light of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So before we consider anything else, let me ask you if you know this morning. Have you known what it is to mourn over your sins with a godly sorrow? 
not just, a, not just a regret, not just a regret like Judas had or like Ahab had, but a regret or a, a, a sorrow that caused you to go in repentance like Peter and David. I think for many of us, not that we always intend to, but I think at times we can be much too superficial with our sins. And we acknowledge them and we own them, but do we mourn over them? Are we truly grieved in our hearts when we see the difference there is between us and between our Savior? Do we consider the words of the hymn, it was my sins that held him there? It was my sins that he bore in his own body on the tree. Those same sins that I returned to, and should that not cause us to mourn? We should be those who mourn over our sins. And that is a mark of those in the kingdom, is that they mourn over their sins. But consider also the mourning over the suffering of sin. And that's the second category of mourning I want us to look at this evening. It's mourning that comes from the sorrows and pains of this life brought on by sin. Now there is an aspect in which this pain and suffering in this life is shared by both believer and unbeliever. None of us, we live on this earth that is exempt from suffering. However, while the experiences of life may be common to both, our mourning is what stands us apart and what divides Christian from non-Christian. The mourning of the Christian in the midst of his or her suffering is different from the unbeliever. The unbeliever can be sorrowful for the pain, for loss, for the suffering brought on in this life. But while the believer knows these same things and knows these same sorrows, we mourn for reasons that the unbeliever can't because we understand what is behind it all. Now I want you to pause for a minute and just think through the sufferings we're brought to experience in this life. And it's not exhaustive. Consider sickness, chronic illness, long-term debilitating sickness, sickness that, or some sort of depression that hangs upon us, either with ourselves or loved ones. Brethren, we know what it is to experience death, the death of spouses, of children, of parents, of siblings, of dear friends. We know what it is to experience financial insecurity, Again, it's a result of the fall. Low finances and resources, limited means, unstable job, perhaps not being able to provide for our families the way we would like. Broken relationships. If you know what it is to have best friends torn apart, perhaps you've experienced that yourself. To be in an unhappy or miserable marriage. Or to know what it is to have forgiveness withheld or to experience growing animosity with someone, or consider family relationships that have broken and are no more. And here's a suffering that only the people of God know, unconverted family and friends, children who have not come to Christ, loved ones who may have professed faith who have now walked away, ones we love who have died giving us little confidence of the state of their souls. Now in all that list, some are worse than others, as you consider them. But of all those things listed, if you're experiencing any of those things or have experienced any of those things, is it not cause to mourn? And maybe you don't break down in crying, but does it not give you heaviness of spirit and inward pain? Now, with the suffering we experience in this life for the Christian, there is the added spiritual dimension of the, to that suffering that causes us to mourn and sorrow, and that is the presence of sin. Because we know as those who have the word of God that all suffering and all pain and all evil in this world that we experience in this life is a result of sin. It all stems back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the tree and sin entered the world. Sin has spoiled God's perfect creation. Sin has defaced and corrupted us. And this world lies under a curse because of sin. Again, we can trace every sickness and disease, every death and dark thought, every broken and ruptured relationships, everything, our, our needs not being met, we can trace it all back to the presence of sin. And because we are God's people, and because we have God's word, we look at it all, and we can imagine what things would have been like if sin had never entered the world. 
Whenever we see a funeral home, it's a reminder that those places exist because sin is present in the world. Every hospital, every homeless shelter, every jail, every divorce and family court all point to the reality that sin exists. And we see loved ones and friends who have no thought of God and have no place for Christ in their life. They live their lives in such a way as to court destruction and and attempt disaster. And we see the insanity that sin brings into individual lives. We see all that and realize it's because of sin. And that knowledge brings with it a sense of mourning. How can it not? How can we not mourn when we see the effects of sin in our lives and the lives of those we love and lives of the world around us? We see the pain and sorrow it inflicts in this world. And the Bible reminds us the creation itself, this created order groans under the bondage of sin and those of us in Christ groan and mourn over the effects of sin we see all around us. Now to consider those two things, those are heavy matters. And it's easy when you're preaching a sermon that you end one point and you go to the next. But let that sink in for a moment. Consider the weight and the heaviness of sin, both in our own lives and the lives of others. In in our own lives, how often does our sin affect others? How often, for those of us who have kids, very often it's not our uh, good traits, we might say, that they pick up on, but they pick up on our sins. And at times we can see our own sin reflected in our children. That's a heavy thought. That we're training them just by our example in sin. And the world around us and those who suffer, we have ones we know that are suffering right now, we see it's all because of sin. It's all because of the curse. And no matter how good things may get in this life, it's always tainted and always covered by the curse. Brethren, that should cause us to mourn. And those who are in the kingdom, those who have been born again into the kingdom, mourn over the sin we see. Bless God, that's not where things end. Because there's divine comfort that is promised. And this is the blessedness that is given to those who mourn, that they will be comforted. Now, before we look at the comfort itself, you will notice uh, in the Beatitudes there that it is spoken of in the future. In fact, only the first and last Beatitude are spoken in the present tense. All the others are in the future tense. So blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. But we shouldn't think of that as though there is no fulfillment of that promise right now. As several commentators have pointed out, the, the first and last Beatitude bookend the rest. And those first and last Beatitude are bookended with the promise that ours now in the present tense is the kingdom of heaven. And so all these other blessings flow from the possession of the kingdom itself. So we know them in part now, but we await an even fuller uh, uh, perfection of those promises in the kingdom, in the full revelation of the kingdom. But there is a present enjoyment now. Now I want us to consider the comfort that is promised. And the word itself is a familiar word. It's a form of the word parakaleo. It has the idea to instill with courage or to cheer, to encourage or console. But in Matthew here, the form of the word is in the passive. It is something received, comfort that is received by those who mourn. So what is the comfort received and given to those who mourn in the kingdom? And specifically tonight, I want to consider comfort that is given on account of sin. I want us to consider that aspect of that comfort. Again, this is not exhaustive at, by any means. It's very, very limited. But I'm hope, I hope tonight to give us a few things that we can put in our minds so that we can draw comfort, of, comfort from in our days here. But I want us to consider it in a Trinitarian framework. I want us to consider the comfort given by the Father, comfort given by the Son, and comfort given by the Spirit as it relates to our mourning over sin, both in ourselves and in the world around us. First of all, consider the comfort given by the Father. 
Have you ever, well, I know you have considered, but consider afresh the fact that the Father has set his love upon you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, there is debate there on the translation whether we are without blame before him in love or whether in love he predestined us to adoption. But whichever way it's taken, the point is still the same. The action from the Father is born of love to and for his people. The whole process of salvation and the blessings that are ours in Christ find their starting place in the love of the Father for his people. Consider 1 John 4, 7-11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here again, we're given a clear statement of the love of the Father for us. And that love is demonstrated itself in action by the giving of his son. Do you want to know that the Father loves you? He doesn't just tell you that he loves you. He demonstrates it. He does so in giving his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. And there is a reason why we are reminded over and over again in Scripture that God's love is demonstrated toward us in the gift of his Son. Because there's not, no greater way than he can demonstrate his love toward us. It would be one thing if he constantly, it would be one thing to read in Scripture that God loves us, God loves us, God loves us. But we might ask, well, where's the demonstration of that? Where do we see that? How do I know that is true? And we're reminded over and over again, whatever God's love is mentioned, it's, in, it's mentioned in connection that he gave his son for us. As a child of God, in the midst of your mourning, in this world because of sin, in the midst of your own sin, in the midst of the sin you see all around you, let the comfort be your father loves you. And he wants you to know that love and to live in light of that love and to know the comfort that, that love gives. But secondly, the Father actively cares for you in a world that suffers under sin. And this is closely tied to his love for us. And you think about it, it would be an imperfect father who loved us, who said he loved us but didn't care for us. Or if you have a father that would provide what you needed but showed no affection to, towards you. Our Father in heaven does both. He both loves us and he both cares for us. And consider his care. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and we'll read verses 28 through 32. So well-known words, but they're good words. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here again in context, speaking of the Father, note he did not spare his own son. Again, that's the watershed event held out in the scriptures to show the fullness and the freeness of God's love for us. It's in the giving of his son to redeem us. Now, all that we've considered is not exhaustive by any means. We could, we could spend much more time here going through the scriptures and seeing the love of God for us. But I hope it's enough to convince you of the comfort to be had from considering the love and care of the Father for you. 
especially in regards to what we considered earlier in our terms of mourning. Consider, as a father who loves you, you cannot send away his love. He loves you with an everlasting love. Now that love may bring pain, as Hebrews 12 reminds us. But those whom the Lord loves, he does chasten. And his discipline is reserved for his children. And it is a sign that we are his. But he never disciplines or brings affliction into our lives out of anger. It's always for our good. As we read in Hebrews 12.10, But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And those of us who are parents, we know that we can sometimes react to our kids in anger. When we should be controlled and we should discipline them in love, at times it can show itself in anger. But your Father in heaven never reacts to you in anger. Even in your sin, even in your foolishness, even in your backsliding, he never reacts to you in anger. All his dealings toward you and for you are in love. He's not going to disown you. He keeps you in covenant with him so that you cannot fall away. So all of our mourning over our sin and our daily reminders of it, we should take comfort that our Father's love is fixed on us. And it's not dependent on us. It is his fixed and unchanging love toward us. But his dealings with us in life are in love also. We considered earlier the, the sorrow brought on by sin and the suffering it causes. But that should not drive us to doubt our Father's love, but to embrace it. Because even in the pain, he comforts us. And part of this is living by faith. We're given the big picture finish. We read that there in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good. That's, that's the big picture finish. We know that all things are working for our good. But in the day-to-day moment, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes that is cloudy. Sometimes that is hard to see. And there may be trials we are brought through to, or experience that we live with the rest of our days and they cause us to mourn. But consider the closing words we're given in Romans 8 and verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice what he says here. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. How many of those things are not a result of sin? None of them. Every single one happens because of sin. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's a, that's a graphic picture there. Sheep are about to be slaughtered. There's, there's no second chance. There's no coming out at the end of it. And Paul's saying that's, that's, what, that's what it's like living in this world. But note verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, or, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, whatever we experience in this life, whatever is brought into this life, and that we experience and we suffer because of the presence of sin in this cursed world, it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So take comfort that your Father loves you. But also we are given comfort from the Son. And that comfort from the Son is something that is made clear and manifest through his incarnation. You recall in Luke 4, early in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, you recall that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he took the scroll and he opened it to Isaiah 61. Now, if we read Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, we read read these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now Luke records that our Lord read verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2, and then he sat down. And you remember what he said then? He said that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was the one whom Isaiah prophesied would be anointed to preach good tidings to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. 
he would be the one to come to comfort all who mourn. And there's a particular aspect of the ministry of Jesus that his ministry was to bring comfort to the people of God. In fact, given that our Lord quoted that passage in Isaiah, if you go through um, Isaiah, comfort coming to the people of God is a theme you find throughout Isaiah. In fact, the second half of Isaiah that begins that new section in, in chapter 40, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And Jesus, as it were, comes on the scene and he begins his ministry, says, I am the one who is coming to bring comfort to the people of God, to those who mourn. And it was in his coming and ministry that he brings comfort to us. And it's particularly in revealing of his work that we see how he brings comfort to the people of God. And in fact, we've seen a lot of this as Pastor Jim has gone through the book of Hebrews, but let me remind you of some of those passages. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in Hebrews 5, 1 through 2, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Such a sampling shows us how the Lord Jesus and his taking on flesh, and now in his glorified state as the mediator between God and man, he continues as one who gives comfort to his people. Even now, in the midst of our griefs and sorrows, Jesus stands and remains as our high priest, as one who, as our high priest, who gives peace and comfort to us. And as our priest, he intercedes for us. He upholds us day by day, moment by moment, in his prayers and intercessions for us. Have you ever considered believers who have gone through untold sorrow and pain and trials? Maybe someone comes to mind now, and you wonder what, what kept them, what keeps them. It's not because they are strong. It's not because their faith is bigger or better than other Christians because they have a high priest who is upholding them and who's keeping them and who's interceding for them. One who is sustaining them and keeping them from falling away. And for those of us here, what a comfort that is to know as we go through this life, he is interceding for us moment by moment. There's not a, there's not a time that we are not, as it were, out of his mind. His, his mind is on us. His intercession is upholding us. He is able, he's able to comfort us because he was one who was a man of sorrows and equated with grief. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to see the effect of sin weeping before Lazarus' tomb or weeping over the hardness of heart of Jerusalem. As we heard this morning, he knew what it was to experience intense grief at Gethsemane. His was a life of suffering. His was a life of mourning, but he did all that. He entered into all that. He lived that life so that he could be one who could bring comfort to those who mourn. His work as a priest and his sacrifice answers to our need of sin. In him, there is full atonement and forgiveness for all of our sin. His obedience is our righteousness. His life and obedience secures our eternal standing and glory, and it can never be lost or diminished. We are saved and made secure because Jesus is our life and Jesus is our standing. And that should comfort each and every child of God. We don't look for comfort in how strong we are or in how good we're doing. We take comfort in what he has done and secured on our behalf. And to know the comfort that nothing can mar or deface his work. It can't, it can't be undone. It can't be diminished. 
It can't be set aside. It is perfect and complete. And it is spotless. And he gives that work to us. So let me encourage us as we mourn over our sin and we feel overwhelmed with the sorrow over the trials of life, take comfort that the Son of God is your high priest to whom you are united forever, who will never lose you, who will never leave you, but he will bring you to himself that where he is, you may be also. Lastly, there is comfort given by the Spirit. And this is seen by the ministry of the Spirit himself. In fact, in the largest place in Scripture given to the Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse in John, the Spirit is referred to as the helper or comforter, one who comes alongside to assist and minister to us. Jesus promised not to leave us as orphans. And he mentions that in the specific context of the sending of the Spirit. Listen to what he says in John 14, 16 through 18. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And he comes to the ministry of the Spirit. And we know that the presence of Jesus himself is through the Spirit. And we have the indwelling of the Spirit as a source of comfort for us as believers. You think about that. We're not left alone. We're not left to fend for ourselves. But we have the ministry of the Spirit for each and every child of God. And part of that comforting work of the Spirit is to testify to the Word of God, to remind us of the promises of God and the truth of who God is and His faithfulness and love. All that is truth that the Spirit presses upon us as means of comfort. He brings to mind the finished work of Christ, the perfect work of salvation. He bears witness that we are the children of God. It's why when we read the Scriptures, they're not just words on the page, by the Spirit, they are words of life to us. But not only is there the ministry of the Spirit to us individually, we also see the comforting ministry of the Spirit in the saints. As each child of God has the Spirit, so too, as we comfort one another, as we weep with those who weep, we are the means of the Spirit bringing comfort to one another. So don't ever take lightly the task of ministering to one another. It may simply be a prayer or a shoulder to lean on, it may simply be shared tears, but all that is an aspect of part of how the Spirit brings comfort to those who mourn. And we can, and that's one thing that we are to experience in life together, we will weep with those who weep. But let's take, let's be those who both are willing to give that comfort, to weep with those who weep, but also be those who receive comfort from brothers and sisters. How do we sum this up? Where's all this going to? All this is going to, we think of the individual comfort given by the Father, Son, and Spirit. The day's coming when the triune God will fulfill what we read of in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Those tears that we have shed in this life, those tears that we have shed over our own sin, those tears that we have shed over the pain the sin has brought into this world. As it were, we're going to stand there and our tear-streaked, tear-stained faces, he's going to, as it were, take and wipe them clean. We will never know another tear. There will never be another moment of pain, never be another moment of seeing the ugly effects of sin that has brought into this world. He'll be gone away forever. And then we will know a level of comfort that we cannot even imagine right now. Because even in this life, with the comfort that we have, bless God we have this comfort. It's comfort that's still in the midst of sin and the effects of sin. We comfort, but we mourn. 
even tomorrow and the days ahead, there's going to be fresh reasons to mourn again. But in the new heavens and new earth, there will be just joy and comfort. Never any mourning, never any sorrow, never any pain, never any sickness, never any death. Brethren, that's what we have to look forward to. That is what our God is ultimately preparing for each and every one of us. We mourn now, but we may never mourn again. But some of you here tonight, you're outside of Christ. And what I've been speaking to have been those who have been in Christ. But you who are outside of Christ have no grounds for comfort. In fact, it's interesting, in Luke's gospel, in, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he expands what our Lord said. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And even if you're not in Christ right now, I know that you have sorrow in this life. It may not be much now, but you will have sorrow in this life. There's no escape in it. We live in a world that's cursed. And I was talking with Derek the other day. He reminded me of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And you remember that the rich man enjoyed all these luxuries, and Lazarus was a beggar at his gate. The dogs licked his sores. And after they both died, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man to torment. And the rich man wanted relief from his pain. And we read these words in Luke 16, 25. But Abraham said, Son, speaking to the rich man, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are in torment. For some of you who are outside of Christ, what a sobering thought that this world will be as good as it gets. You're still going to know pain in this world. You're still going to know sorrow in this world. And God is merciful and gracious that he even gives you things to enjoy in this world. But if you never come to Christ, if you never embrace Christ, this is it. After this, there is no more comfort. I remember a sermon that uh, J.C. Ryle preached, and you probably heard of it. I remember reading it as a kid, and it stuck with me. It was actually a, a children's sermon. And the sermon title, if I remember right, is No More Tears. But his points stuck out. There's a place where there is some crying, and that's here. And those of you who are even the youngest, who can understand what I'm saying, you know you cry now. There are times that you cry. You get hurt. You get upset. Something doesn't go your way. There'll be a multitude of reasons why you cry, but it passes. Nobody's crying now, so you don't always cry here in this life. There's a place where there's some crying. There's a place where there's no more crying, and that's what we just considered. That's what awaits the people of God. But he spoke of a place where there is nothing but crying. And if you think about what it's like to go an eternity of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's imagery of just intense, unutterable sorrow and pain. And there's no relief. The gospel comes to you now and says, and Christ comes to you now and says, why will you die why will you sorrow? Why will you not have joy that I'm offering you now? And my desire, I know it's the desire of every believer here, is that those of you who are outside of Christ, that you would mourn now, that you would weep now, that you would recognize your sins, and that you would forsake your sins and flee to Christ. May he do that work in you, because the promise is whoever comes to him will find mercy, will find forgiveness, will find deliverance, our prayer is that you would know comfort now, but then that you would know an eternity of comfort and joy in the age to come. Let's pray. Our Father, these have been weighty matters that we've considered tonight. And as your people, we are struck afresh how ugly sin is, how much it mars what you've created, 
how much it still clings to us, how much of life is still tainted with it, and we suffer because of it. But Father, as your people, we thank you for the comfort you give us. We thank you for the love of our Father who sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you for the Son who took upon himself flesh and blood that he might know sorrow here, that he might be a faithful high priest and interceding for us. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, that we have not been left as orphans, but we have the Spirit who assures us, the Spirit who testifies that we are the children of God. Father, we pray that as your people, we would drink deeply of the comfort that you give us in our pilgrimage here. And may the sorrow and the mourning that we know in this life, Father, may that cause us to long even more for that new heavens and the new earth where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Father, we pray for those here who are strangers to Christ. Father, we ask that you would draw them. Father, make them more now. Make them see the evil of sin. Make them see the sorrow of sin. Father, make them see what happens when sin is, is, when sin is embraced and Christ is despised. Lord, I pray that you would cause to sink in the, the words of the rich man, or the words of Abraham to the rich man. You have your comfort in this life. Now there is only torment. Father, I pray, may there not be a single soul here who will know that torment. Father, may they know true comfort and peace that only the Son gives. May they fly to Jesus even now. May they find in him to be life and salvation. Father, cause them in their hearts to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Father, we know that all who cry out to you, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And we ask these things all in his name. Amen.